In this episode, Matt Kelly and Tom Fox take a deep dive into the recently released deferred prosecution agreement uh, by First Energy. First Energy was embroiled in a domestic corruption scandal in the state of Ohio. We take a look at it, mining it for lessons learned for the compliance practitioner. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode, Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up the first energy uh, corruption settlement, a fascinating case made even more interesting because it's a U.S. domestic corruption case. So, Matt, first of all, uh, welcome back. And what can you tell us about first energy? Uh, Hello, Tom. So this is a fascinating case. Uh, It has all the hallmarks of an FCPA corruption case that our listeners probably know about, except it happened here in the United States. And in fact, some of you might already know the broad contours of this. And Tom, you and I might even have spoken about this issue last year because it started when the Speaker of the Ohio House of Representatives, Larry Householder, He was indicted by federal prosecutors in Ohio last summer for taking up to $60 million in bribes from First Energy, which is a large public utility in the Midwest. Uh, Householder had been accepting bribes, according to the indictment, uh, from First Energy and others. Householder has since been forced out of office. He is awaiting trial. But this settlement from First Energy is the other side of that scandal where First Energy pleaded out to a three-year deferred prosecution agreement, um, pleading to one count of wire fraud, uh, three-year prosecution, a deferred prosecution deal, hiring an independent chief ethics and compliance officer, which they already did. They hired Antonio Fernandez back in March, um, cooperating with further investigations, submitting annual progress reports during the tenure of the DPA, Uh, working to establish a culture of ethics and integrity and accountability. See, these are all the things that we see in FCPA settlements. Uh, It's also here in this domestic version of the misconduct, plus a $230 million fine, which is not chump change, even for a large business like First Energy. The misconduct itself, Tom, according to prosecutors, is basically First Energy directed $60 million in payments to Larry Householder through several different third parties. We can talk about who they were, how that worked in a minute. Uh, And in exchange for funneling money to Householder to help him keep his political power in Ohio and personal things like building or renovating a second home in Florida, Householder then pushed through legislation for a taxpayer-funded bailout of two nuclear power plants in Ohio that had been owned by a First Energy subsidiary. Uh, That subsidiary has since gone into bankruptcy, been spun off, and been reborn. The power plants are still there. They're still still losing money. But that's the broad contours of the case here. Um, Corporate money paid through third parties to an elected official in exchange for favorable legislation back to the business. We've heard about that many times before in FCPA cases, and now we have this domestic counter version of it, which we don't often see in the United States. So it's always interesting when these things come along. So I would say interesting uh, is a, a very, very understated way to put that. Matt, uh, in 
I should have said that uh, you have written about this on radical compliance in a blog post entitled First Energy and Domestic Corruption Woes. The uh, I think we have to start off with some sort of remarks around that every compliance officer needs to understand this from the domestic perspective and whatever uh, rigor they have around their FCPA compliance program, they also have to look at their domestic compliance program and they need senior management to understand that domestic corruption is equally illegal uh, across the board and the companies can get into to trouble for that. But beyond that, Matt, did you see anything particularly sophisticated about the bribery scheme that First Energy engaged in? Well, we can talk about the bribery scheme because it was complicated. On the other hand, uh, it's a sad commentary on U.S. political spending and corporate influence in the United States that this sort of stuff happens all the time, and the tax laws and corporate, uh, incorpor the incorporation laws in the United States are kind of geared for this nonsense to be permissible and to happen. Uh, so here's what went on, is that in February of 2017, First Energy executives orchestrated the creation of a nonprofit group called Partners for Progress, and they are actually known under the tax code as 501c4 groups. This is not like 501c3 groups, which are public charities like um, the National Cancer Institute or something, where they have to disclose their donors and political campaigns. If you want to donate to so-and-so running for whatever, those can also be political. Um, they're, they're charities where you know their donations are disclosed. 501c4 corporations do not need to disclose their donors. So back to First Energy and their CEO at the time, uh, Chuck Jones, who has been fired, by the way. Um, so Chuck Jones and several other executives at First Energy arranged for Partners in Progress to be incorporated. They clearly knew this was just going to be a front organization for First Energy. Uh, they incorporated it in Delaware because the transparency laws there about who owns what are worse than in Ohio. They decided who the directors of Partners for Progress would be, including two of them would be First Energy lobbyists. Um, and they even had set aside $5 million in First Energy coffers for an unnamed to be announced later 501c4. They had done that in 2016. And then they went and they created this 501c4 group in 2017. At the same time, Larry Householder, the former speaker, uh, he had orchestrated creation of his own 501c4 organization called Generation Now. And uh, basically, First Energy's executives directed one of their subsidiaries, First Energy Service, which owned those two nuclear power plants in question, to to pay money into Partners for Progress to donate money to that group. And Partners for Progress then made its own donations to Generation Now, which, of course, was really just a front organization for Larry Householder's wallet. And so the money went from First Energy Corporate's headquarters to the subsidiary to Partners for Progress, the third party controlled by First Energy, to Generation Now, the third party controlled by Larry Householder, to Larry Householder himself. It was about $60 million, funded over the course of roughly three years, 2017 into 2020. Uh, it was mostly used to help Larry Householder spend to expand his majority in the Republican, uh, into the Ohio uh, House of Representatives. 
That did not work. They actually lost four seats by 2020, although they did keep their majority. Uh, they pushed through the $1.3 billion taxpayer bailout, and that was the quid pro quo. And some of that $60 million, prosecutors say, went directly to Householder. Um, we should note that Householder, as I mentioned, he's still awaiting trial, but several of his henchmen, uh, they have pleaded guilty in connection to this case. Generation Now, his orchestrated front organization charity, has also uh, pleaded guilty. So it does not look good for Mr. Householder, but he is still awaiting trial on these charges. And all of this is, Tom, when people hear about the dark money political spending, that's what these 501c4 corporations allow companies to do, because you do not need to disclose who your donors are if you're a 501c4. 501c3 is different, and you do have to disclose it. But Citizens United was the, the Supreme Court case from 2010 that let companies spend unlimited amounts of money on political issues. That's where the money goes. It goes into 501c4 groups who do not need to disclose where their money is coming from or how much it is. You have to do a lot of sleuthing around to figure out who are the people who own these groups, who control them, who funds them. It's possible, but it's not easy. Uh, so therefore, they become these prime conduits for transferring and funneling money around that really is just a bribe. And we should stop here and say, this is exactly how the FCPA works overseas. You have these third-party agents who are doing what? We don't know. And you know they have these charities. And where does the money come from? That's not clear. Same thing happening right here in the United States through these dark money charities that are allowed to spend on issues. What kind of issues? Maybe a taxpayer-funded taxpayer bailout of nuclear power plants or whatever else. It's that kind of seedy underbelly of dark money spending that is at issue here. Many other large companies do it, and it is a whisker away from being manipulated into bribery payments, which is what First Energy has admitted to here. Matt, is the difference that in First Energy we had a clear uh, quid pro quo? Uh, it certainly looks to be a pretty clear quid pro quo from the evidence in the statement of facts and the criminal information that were filed with the First Energy case, uh, where very clearly the then CEO, Chuck Jones, who, as I said, was fired in 2020, and Larry Householder, they were exchanging uh, direct messages that they clearly knew this money was going from the company to Householder in exchange for help and assistance with uh, the nuclear bailout. Um, there were other exchanges there from various other executives who've been involved in this caper. Um, but clearly, the quid pro quo was crystal clear once you get into the details of it. We could go on all day long quoting exact excerpts from the documents and the filings. But that's exactly what was going on here. Um, and plus, a lot of that spending, we should remember, was not going to further any political cause. It was going to renovate householders' second home down in Florida. Um, millions of dollars we're talking about. So that was a bridge too far for campaign finance laws. And Tom, you had mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to say again, that we don't in the United States have an equivalent Domestic Corrupt Practices Act um, I kind of think in a certain sense, that's even more problematic for compliance officers. And it's why you really need to pay attention to bribery activity in the United States. 
Because at least overseas, when you do this, you violated one law. You're in a heap of trouble, but you know what law you violated, and you know how you are going to settle your way out of this or go to trial or whatever. In the United States, since we don't have any one master law for this, you could violate any number of statutes and get into bribery trouble. Uh, it could be a mail fraud uh, issue or a wire fraud case, as happens here. You could have state laws that might differ from one jurisdiction to another. You could conceivably, in some states, have a local district attorney who's going to bring criminal charges against your company uh, for some misconduct that happened in county wherever that you and have central headquarters you've never heard of. It could happen with all three jurisdictions, federal, state, and local. It could happen with different U.S. attorneys in different states bringing their own causes or their own complaints against your company. So to a certain extent, a certain way, your corruption risk in the United States is higher because you've got more law enforcement agencies who could potentially try and carve a piece out of your corporate rear end. Um, that's why you need to think about this. And you know, in no way, shape or form, should you think, well, the FCPA is all we need to worry about and we don't have overseas exposure, so we're fine. You are not fine. Um, you really do need to think about this, these kind of issues quite a lot. So Matt, separate and apart from some of the compliance lessons you've detailed, you also uh, wrote about compliance program implications. Could you go through that section for us? Yeah, I think, you know, as always, you should first and foremost be thinking about what are the policies we want for um, how we fund 501c4 groups or make political contributions generally. And in fact, you should tease out a distinction here. Companies can do this. You can donate to political groups, political candidates, political campaigns, um, but donations to a political campaign, Joe Schmo running for president in 2024, that is different from donating to a dark money political group that might be doing advertising that supports Joe Schmo or opposes Joe Schmo. Um, if you're making direct campaign contributions, you have one set of laws you need to think about and comply with if you're a company. Uh, if you bid on government services, potentially you have pay-to-play conflict of interest rules where maybe you can't do this. Um, you know, if you are handling, say, financial services for a public pension in a state, you have a lot of risks around conflicts of interest if your employees are donating to candidates in that state, like a state treasurer or governor, something like that. Um, so what are your policies actually going to be? Uh, what are your policies going to be around donating to 501c4 groups when right now, at least, you can do what you want? So what are the boundaries? Are you going to not donate to them at all? Are you going to donate to some but not others? You're going to need to have a policy. Um, you will need to think about specifically politically active third parties, such as uh, Partners for Progress or Generation Now. And are they fronts for politicians? Are they legitimate causes that these groups are espousing? Um, you'll need to decide whether you want to refrain from any of those donations at all or some but not others. You might need to think about, do we want to impose these donation limits on employees individually, which... Legally, in many instances, you can have a policy like that. You require pre-clearance before an employee donates to a political cause or a group. You might want to think about that. You might need to make sure that your policy that you have is, in fact, legally free and clear 
especially if you are at the state or local level thinking about this and you've got state or local laws that you have to worry about. Um, you will also, if you're a compliance officer, you'll need clarity into what the company's charitable donations actually are. Um, where is this money going? Where is this money coming from? Just like your clarity into payments to overseas agents, you need to know who is this agent? What are they doing for us? Uh, do they have any politically exposed people involved? Um, is the agent providing services at a reasonable rate? And all the other stuff that we see from the FCPA resource guide. With minor retrofitting, you should apply those same criteria to donations to charitable groups here in the United States. But also, you're going to need to be able to see into the accounting system to know where is our money going and who are these groups that are receiving our money and what are they doing and who's on their boards. You would need to have that visibility. And if you don't, you'd need to think about how are we going to get it. Um, and then you would need to be thinking about other conflict of interest policies, about what third parties might be doing for you. Um, for example, those two lobbyists for First Energy who are also on the board of Partners for Progress, do you want to have a conflict of interest policy about lobbyists and employees who might serve on nonprofit groups that could potentially create a conflict of interest? Um, you'll need to think through those kind of things. Think about how would a bribe actually work through my company's payments to political groups and what policies and procedures would I want in place to make sure that can't happen? A lot of it is conflicts of interest. A lot of it is pre-approval of employee activities. Uh, some of it is just pure regulatory compliance around uh, campaign contribution laws. You do not need a campaign finance case to crop up on your legal team's radar screen. Those are very distracting and difficult cases to get involved in. And Tom, lastly, I'd just like to say this is not an academic question about do we really need this. Think about how sensitive corporate uh, uh, investors, shareholder activists or consumers, how sensitive they were to political donations to Republicans who supported the insurrection in, on January 6th. And a lot of companies stopped donating to uh, politicians who were affiliated with the insurrection back then. Uh, some of them have loosened their standards. They're giving money back, but whatever. Uh, but you need to do. You need to be aware that disclosure of political campaign spending or political spending by corporations—that's a rising cause among good governance activists. It is something that a lot of consumers are now sensitive to. A lot of shareholders are sensitive to. Your company might get pulled into a position where there's a lot of pressure from your stakeholders to come clean about where are you spending your money. And if your company decides to come clean on how it is spending its money on political causes, how would the company actually do that? What are the systems you'd need in place? What's the reporting? What's the analysis that you'd have to perform? So I don't think that this is just an academic exercise that companies can ignore. Like there's gonna be a real push for more attention to these kind of issues. And you might as well be aware of what those issues and pressures are and how you want to respond to it. So I like the way you tied that into the G of uh, ESG and how I think G doesn't get perhaps as much um, play as it does, uh, as, as it should rather, uh, certainly for energy and social or sustainability. So uh, any real last thoughts uh, as we close out here, Matt? 
Well, I would just encourage all compliance officers to think about how you could uh, clone or retrofit your FCPA compliance program for domestic operations uh, because your risks are going to be higher from more law enforcement sources that could push these cases. Uh, the difficulty of getting visibility into these transactions can often be a bit uh, more arduous. And the appetite among ESG activists and other stakeholders out there for more attention on this issue of domestic bribery, that's on the rise. So I don't think First Energy is at all going to be the last of these kind of cases that we see. It's very instructive, but by no means are we going to close the books on domestic corrupt practices. So we're going to see more of that in the future, I suspect. Well, Matt, we now are at the end of our time. So I wanted to uh, thank you and look forward to seeing what next week brings us. Thank you, Tom. Tom Fox. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've linked to Matt's article in our show notes, so check that out. It's a fascinating case. I'll be writing about it shortly as well. I hope you'll join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive, literally going into the compliance weeds for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I also hope you will check out our latest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The ESG Report. The ESG Report takes a deep dive into ESG from the compliance perspective. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network, or you can subscribe and have it delivered directly to your inbox by going to the FCPA Compliance Report. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.